and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great and wonderful, great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses and said, this man ceases, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, moving to Acts chapter seven verses, Acts chapter seven, verse 51 through chapter eight, verse three. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have, whom, whom you, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who rejected the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution among the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. I need to make a confession at the outset. I have read this passage, I don't even know how many times over the course of my life, and every time I get to it, it is a confusing passage to me. I have a hard time following what it is that Stephen is trying to say. And I wasn't surprised this week as I started to research this and read some of the commentaries to find that quite a few people uh, agree with me. Now, uh, the playwright Bernard Shaw, he said that, that he found Stephen to be a tactless and conceited bore when he read the chapter. Uh, Debelius, who is a liberal theologian, he said that he was struck by what he thought was the irrelevance of most of Stephen's speeches. And, and over the years, I'm embarrassed to admit that, that I kind of agreed with that. I was like, I don't really understand what's going on here. It seems like it's all 
circular reasoning, but I don't feel that way anymore. After having a whole week to, to examine this passage, I actually have done a, a complete 180. Uh, I've really found a, a deep love for this passage because I have come to see this as maybe one of the most profound pictures we have in Scripture of a man who knows his Savior. Not only somebody who has good theology, who's able to defend his faith, but somebody who very literally knows Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that, that name? And so that's what I want us to be thinking about this morning as we try to dig into this really long passage. How would your life be different if you knew Jesus the way Stephen knows Jesus? If you knew Jesus as God with you, if you truly believed that the living Savior of the universe was with you this morning, how would you face the challenges that are ahead of you this week? How would you encounter those trials? How would you encounter suffering? How would you speak if you knew that he was here? How would you experience both your joys and your sorrows? How would those things be different if you really believed that God was near to you? So to answer that question, I got a few points that come out of Stephen's sermon. We didn't read the whole thing, but we're going to kind of talk about it, summarize it. The first point is, quite simply, that God does not live in a temple. God does not live in a temple. The second point is that human beings are constantly attempting to confine him, and as a result, they miss him entirely. And the third point is that Jesus stands with his people at all times. So, point number one, God doesn't live in a temple. Last week, we talked about deacons a little bit. Pastor Moses was here. He preached a great sermon for us. Uh, you will remember that in that list of the new deacons, Stephen was one of the men who had been set aside. They laid hands on him and prayed and, and ordained him to be one of the deacons. Uh, Stephen was a godly man. And in addition to his deacon duties, which were serving, caring for the poor, he was also somebody who loved Jesus. And that meant that he, like all the rest of the people in the church at that time, could not stop talking about Jesus. And he was telling everyone what he had learned, and he was sharing it in the synagogues, and people didn't like it. And so they seized him, and then they brought him up on these trumped-up charges because they wanted to make him stop. They wanted to punish him. And so Luke tells us that they had all these false witnesses who came forward and brought accusations against them. Verse 11, grab your Bibles, you can look at this with me. Um, verse 11 of, of chapter 6, it says, These people, these false witnesses, said, they, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Then verse 13, it says, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs Moses delivered to us. So we don't really know exactly what Stephen was saying. Uh, we don't have a record of any of his sermons except for this one. But we can hear in those accusations some of the echoes of what we know Jesus taught. So the accusation that, that he was constantly speaking against the temple, it might remind you of John chapter 2, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And 
then his opponents responded and said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But then John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then their accusation about Stephen changing the customs of Moses, it reminds us of uh, what Jesus said about the law, right? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Jesus had spoken these true words. Stephen was echoing these true words, but these false witnesses had taken those words and twisted them, and instead they said, this guy is talking against Moses. He's talking against the temple. He's talking against the law, and he is talking against God. And those are pretty bad charges in those days. In fact, that's about as much as they can charge you with. They're throwing everything at this guy. They're making every possible accusation against him. This is a capital offense, something worthy of death if he really is guilty of this. And it seems, from the way that Stephen defends himself, that of all of those different charges, the main point was some of those things that Stephen was saying about the temple. He was telling them what, what Christians believe, right? As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. That all of those sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, that those were ultimately signs pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. Christians, and even the, the Old Testament scriptures will tell you that animal blood doesn't really Take away anybody's sin. An innocent animal, an innocent lamb, cannot truly stand in as a substitute for a human being who is guilty of sin. Only a worthy substitute. Only someone whose sacrifice could, could truly stand for another human being can, can actually replace a guilty human being. And that's the spotless Son of God. All those lambs were pointing towards the true spotless lamb who was going to be a sacrifice once and for all time and eliminate the need for any further sacrifices. So Stephen, when he teaches that, when he's declaring that truth, he is also declaring the temple obsolete. And so he's charged with disrespecting the temple. And therefore, he's charged with disrespecting Moses, who delivered the law that told us what we should do in the temple. And he therefore is charged with disrespecting God himself, because God is ultimately the giver of the law. And so, all that, it puts Stephen on trial, and he's got to defend himself against those charges. And as he does that, he also preaches the gospel. He not only defends himself, but he explains the truth of what Scripture teaches. And here's how he does it. First of all, it's a pretty long passage, like I already mentioned, but he explains the history of the nation of Israel. He talks about how that led up to, eventually, the building of the temple. So he, he begins by sharing about Abraham. Abraham, this solitary man who is called by God to become a great nation. And he has a son named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And those sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he gets to that point of the story, Stephen starts to talk about one of those 12 sons. He talks about Joseph. 
who ended up going down to Egypt as a slave, but, but also delivering all of God's people from famine through that process. But eventually, it brought all of God's people into slavery. And for hundreds of years, they, 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 they remained in Egypt, and then God raised up Moses to be a leader, to be a deliverer, to bring the people out of Egypt. And eventually, that led for them leaving Egypt, going into the promised land, establishing a kingdom where David is the king, and then David builds this temple for God. Actually, David has his son Solomon build the temple for God. So that's a really quick summary of what Stephen says, but it is the main storyline of the Old Testament. And I cannot emphasize to you enough that while Stephen was explaining that, Every single person he was talking to was very familiar with the story. They did not need to be reminded of any of those facts. They all would have been very well acquainted with everything he said. It would kind of be like if, if we were, if you, this was a room full of history professors, you know, and I said, well, let me tell you guys about World War II. It all started with this guy in Germany, right? Everybody would know. I wouldn't have to go any further. In fact, it would be frustrating to sit and listen to somebody who, who maybe wasn't considered an expert, explain that history. They all knew it. But that's kind of what's brilliant about Stephen's approach. He tells this story that everybody knows. He outlines this, this history everybody was familiar with, but he emphasizes something very different. So rather than looking at those people that God calls, rather than emphasizing the history of the nation as it gets built up, instead, he points out something really simple. That all along the way, God was there. He says, in effect, that you guys are accusing me of disrespecting this temple because you believe that God, he's tied down to this temple. You think that God is... is needs this temple, that he's stuck inside of this temple or something, but the reality is that that is not the case. That God was with Abraham in Haran, in Mesopotamia. It says that in verse 2. In verse 9, he says God was with Joseph in Egypt. Then he says God was with Moses in a burning bush in the wilderness. And then God was with the people of Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, he wasn't in a temple. He was in this mobile tabernacle. He was in a tent that moved around. He says it took hundreds of years before anybody ever thought about building a temple. And when they did, the very person who suggested maybe we should build this temple was also King David, who authored this psalm that says, The heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Didn't my hand make everything? When Solomon built the temple, he says it's foolish to think that God is going to live in a house. No one believed that. No one was dumb enough to think that God was really stuck inside of a temple. And so his point is, why are you so attached to it now? Why do you not believe that God's time for using this temple could be over? That God could have moved on? God doesn't live in a house. He is a God who is with his people. He doesn't live in a temple. That's, that's 
the first point. And if you ask me, that's a pretty good argument. But there's a second point that he makes that uh, I think adds a lot to what he has to say. And that is this. He says that people, God doesn't live in a temple, but people are constantly attempting to confine him, and as a result, they miss him entirely. All along the way, through this long history, as God is building and establishing his people, as he's making them into this great nation, as he's delivering them from slavery, he points out another thing. They were constantly rejecting the deliverers that God sent in favor of a small God that they could contain. And the main portion of, our, of the text that talks about that starts in verse 35. I'm going to read it to you. You can read along. Verse 35 through 42, it says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man of God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our, father refused, our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. Now you probably remember that incident if you were listening. That's the story of the golden calf. You know, it's pretty well known. There's lots of movies about it. Um, Moses, he goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, to receive the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for a long time. He's gone for 40 days. We all know he's gone for 40 days. They didn't know that 40 days was like the normal amount of time to be gone, right? But so, so they're wondering where this guy is. And in the midst of it, they get restless. And so they tell Aaron, make a golden calf for us. Now, you may have heard that story, but what you might not recognize is that the golden calf itself was not meant to be some other god. I always thought about, I always thought they just decided to craft some random idol. That's how I always viewed it, you know, growing up. But the truth was, these, these golden calves, they were supposed to represent Yahweh. These were physical representations of, of who they believed delivered them from slavery. That's why in Exodus 32, once Aaron makes it, he says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He was saying, this little idol is God. The people, in that moment, they were attempting to make God manageable, small. And in the process of doing that, Stephen says, they became blind to what God was actually doing. They tried to worship God in this way that they could understand, in this small form factor, in this preferred manner. And as a result, they rejected 
what God was really doing. They ignored the way God actually wanted to be worshipped because the living God, he had chosen to speak to them differently, right? God was sending them a redeemer. God had sent this deliverer. God had sent Moses to lead the people. But instead of listening to God, speaking through this deliverer, they rejected him for something more manageable. He says, uh, Stephen's argument is that that is the same situation that is happening with this temple. Today, Stephen is saying, right now, we are seeing a repeat of history. He said, back then, Moses said, way back then, he said, God's going to raise up another prophet like me from your brothers. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate Moses. But once again, you guys, you've rejected the deliverer that God sent because it's easier to worship a God who can be confined to something that men's hands have built. That's Stephen's big point. That's his big conclusion. That's what he says in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that's, that's what's going on. In their obsession with the temple, they have missed the forest for the trees. And now, he says, you have killed and rejected not just another Moses, not just another prophet, but you have killed the true deliverer, the righteous one. You have killed God himself. And here's the point, as we are studying this passage, here's the point where we come in. We are still guilty of this same sin in all sorts of ways. We commit these same crimes against God that, that these wicked witnesses were committing all the way back then. We confine God to something much smaller than he really is especially in the church. We claim that we are worshiping the true God, that we are worshiping the living God, but all the while we ignore what he is actually speaking to us, what he has actually said to us in his word. Now these people who ended up murdering Stephen, they were guilty of minimizing the law of God. They had become so concerned with keeping the law and judging those people who weren't perfectly keeping the law. I don't think I hit that. But maybe I did. Um, they were so concerned with that uh, that they had forgotten what the law was for. The law was meant to show people that they were guilty. The law was meant to show people how holy God was, how perfect God is. It was, it was meant to show everyone, that you can't just waltz into God's presence, but there has to be some kind of atonement made. The reason you need sacrifices is because no one can be righteous before God. The point of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it was to show us that we need a Savior, 
because our hearts are utterly corrupt. The point of the laws of the sacrifice, the laws of the temple, it was all to show our need for salvation. It was to show that we needed mercy, that we needed grace. But instead, these people, they turned those laws into the source of their righteousness. He said the people who do these things, those are the good people, and the people who don't do those things, they're the bad people. And they said, if you keep this, you save yourself. Basically, that's what they did. They removed the need for a Savior by saying, oh, I can save myself through keeping these rules. They found out a way to make themselves righteous without help from God. The way Stephen put it, he says, your hearts, he says, your, your bodies are circumcised, meaning you're keeping the rules, but your hearts are not. Now, maybe you hear that and you say, well, I don't do that. <laughs> I, I'm not guilty of that. In fact, I would say, no, we're not guilty of that. In fact, today, if you hear about people like this, Pharisees, self-righteous religious people, judgmental religious people, we don't relate to that. No, we get worked up about that, right? Those are the kinds of people we can't stand. Those, those religious people who judge everybody else. I think there's probably nothing we despise more in our society today than self-righteous, judgmental people who, who have no grace for other people who come up short of their standard, right? Maybe you, you probably think of examples right now as I, I mention that. There's somebody in your mind, you're like, yeah, I know them. I can't stand that they're like that. But I want to, as I thought about this week, this week um, one thing that occurred to me is even though we're not uh, religious, we don't live in a, a society where we are, are constantly uh, judging people by these religious laws, I do think our culture is far more legalistic and far less gracious than even this culture was. It's just that our laws have changed. The laws that we think people should abide by are just really different. We don't care if somebody goes to a, a service at the temple, right? We don't care about somebody following the Ten Commandments necessarily. But I think today, the greatest sin in our society is probably intolerance. It's speaking definitively and saying that there is something that's true and there's other things that aren't true. That some things are right and other things are wrong. It's to say that God is something. He actually is one particular way, and he is not another. It's to say that some people will stand before God, and they will be counted righteous in Christ, but other people are going to stand before him and be judged as wicked and guilty. If you decide, if you, if you say to the world, God doesn't live in a temple, you won't get stoned. <laughs> in fact, you'll probably get applauded, right? People will say, of course, God doesn't live in a temple. In fact, they'll probably go on to say, God is in everything. God is everywhere. God's whatever you want him to be. God is in me. God is in you. God is in all things. God is in all faiths. But when you declare truth, when you say that God is holy and he is righteous, 
that he doesn't tolerate sin. And in fact, just like Jesus says, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Then you will get tremendous opposition. See, the worship our, our culture's religion demands is not a God who is confined to the temple. That's what they wanted back then. But, but now we demand, our culture demands, that we worship a God who lives apart from the law entirely. A God who is all-loving, who is completely tolerant. And it's deceptive, because that God seems really big, Right? That God seems really great, a God who, who, who welcomes everybody, who loves everybody. But I want to tell you, in truth, when you confine God to that definition, you are making him very small. You are making him, in fact, completely powerless. That God is a God who is devoid of justice. That God is a God who doesn't judge or punish evil who lets guilty people who have done horrible things go unpunished. That God, I would suggest, the God who is all love is actually evil himself. To let evil go by when he could stop it. When he could judge it and eradicate it. Yet, that's what we do. In the church, we do this all the time. We frequently, we make Jesus sound like he's this like chilled out philosopher that's just all about saying nice things to people. We make him small when we do that, when we, we, we miss entirely who he actually is, just like these guys were doing. We miss the deliverer that God has sent when we don't speak of one who has come to, to deliver the world from judgment and destruction that we deserve because we're sinful. So that's the second point, that people are constantly trying to confine God to something small, and as a result, we miss him entirely. We miss the deliverer that God has sent. And the third point here that we find at the end of this passage is that Jesus, the true Jesus, stands with his people at all times. God doesn't live in a temple. When we try to confine him, we miss him. But finally, Jesus stands with his people at all times. So Stephen is this amazing man of faith. And he chooses in this passage, when he's on trial for his life, to speak boldly about the truth. About the truth of who God is. And he knows the whole time that it's probably going to cost him. It's going to cost him a lot. might even cost him his life. And if you choose to do the same thing, if you choose to boldly declare and be faithful to the living God, it is very likely that it will cost you as well. So why bother? Why would any of us do this? Why would we choose to suffer if we can avoid it by just being quiet? Well, it's because the message that Stephen declares here is true. That message that God is with his people. He's not confined to a temple, but God is actually with us. See, these accusers, they were obsessed 
with finding Stephen guilty of breaking the laws that Moses gave. But he was trying to tell them that that God had sent a Redeemer for them to fulfill those laws that Moses had given, to free them so that they could truly worship God. That he'd sent a Deliverer who was way better than Moses. That Jesus was God himself. He's the fulfillment of all those laws. He's the one that all the prophets were talking about. He's the true tabernacle. He is the living temple. Right? Those buildings, they were were signs. They were symbols. They represented the fact that God dwelt amongst his people, that God's presence was with them. But now that Jesus has come, the signs are obsolete because the real thing is here. His Holy Spirit is the proof. God now dwells with us, in us. His Spirit is in His people. Not in temples, not in buildings that were were made by hand, but His Spirit, the presence of God, is here now. And everything about Stephen in this last moment of his life is, is glorious. It tells us when he starts to speak that just like when Moses was coming down off the mountain, says Stephen's face was was shining. Tells us that he's full of the Spirit as he speaks. And even after he's made this explanation and defense of the gospel, as the people gather around him and condemn him and, and lead him right up to his death, Luke tells us in verse 56 that Stephen looks up and says, Behold, I see the heavens open." and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now I realize in 2019, looking back, reading this passage, this story seems kind of fantastic to us. It seems distant. It seems maybe a little too marvelous. But what I would love for you to recognize here is this is the visual representation. This is the visible truth behind the promise that God has made to every one of his people. See, if if you follow the living God, if you proclaim him with boldness in your life, you might suffer. But God has promised to you, just like Stephen, that he will rise at your defense. In that physical temple that these guys were so concerned about, in the way back, there was this inner room called the Holy of Holies. It was the room that represented the presence of God. It was so sacred that the high priest, they could only go there once a year. And even then, with with a lot of preparation. But as Stephen sees Jesus, it's this proof to us that Jesus is in the real Holy of Holies. He is the great high priest. That that he represents someone. He doesn't just represent, but he is the priest that dwells in God's presence forever. Not in a replica, not in some place made with hands, but in the actual holy place. Hebrews 7, it says that, that God forever, that Jesus forever lives 
to intercede for us, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God because he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the requirement of the law. And, and so that means he's the one standing in front of the judge declaring the innocence of his people. There, there's such a profound depth to the picture. I wish we could just sit and, and stare at it and think about it and try to pluck every little piece of good theology we get from this moment where Jesus stands and rises as Stephen is being crucified and killed. But what I would really long for you to see this morning, what I want for us as we leave this, this room, is I really want you to know the kind of security and confidence that Stephen had. I, I really I long for you to trust Jesus' deliverance so deeply that you would be willing to speak boldly, regardless of what it would cost. That you would know the way Stephen knew that regardless of the opposition, no matter what the world may throw at you, that God is present with you right now. And that he rises to stand at the side of his people. He is there to meet you in your suffering. And one day, just like it happened with Stephen, he's going to welcome you home. The glory of our faith is that we can be confident that Christ will stand on our behalf even when the world caves in around us. All of those things are guaranteed. All of those promises are true for you and only one thing is required of you. That you acknowledge your need for him. That in repentance and faith, you would call him your savior. That you put aside your foolish and small and limited ideas of who God might be and instead recognize the redeemer that he sent. Let's pray. Father, as I look at this long history that stretches back even before Moses, this history of your redemption that goes th through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Solomon, through Peter and Stephen. And Lord, it leads all the way even up to us in this room right now. Lord, I am grateful that you have woven us into this story. I'm grateful that you were with Abraham and you are with us today. And I pray, God, that you would help us to come to you in faith that you would forgive us for the ways that we try to make you small, the ways that we judge others. And instead, I pray that you would help us to come to you, the true and living God, that we would follow you with boldness and confidence and that we would be changed. Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.